Welcome to Paddling the Blue. With each episode, we talk with guests from the Great Lakes and around the globe who are doing cool things related to sea kayaking. I'm your host, my name is John Chase, and let's get started Paddling the Blue. Welcome to Paddling the Blue. Today's guest is Erin Bastian, and we're talking with Erin about her travels through the Mediterranean Sea, particularly the Greek Isles and Corsica, as well as a surprise upcoming adventure. So before we get to this episode, just a quick reminder about our one-year anniversary contest. Listen close for this episode's question and get your answer to me for a chance to win $100 from Level 6 for the gear of your choice from them, as well as shirts and hats from PH Custom Sea Kayaks. And now, Werner Paddles has also added to the prize closet as well, so more about that at the end of today's show. So without any further ado, let's jump in and enjoy today's episode with Aaron Bastian. Hi Aaron, welcome to Paddling the Blue today. Hi John, how you doing? Fantastic, I appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule to join us. We've got uh, lots of fun things to talk about. So Erin, tell us a little bit about your personal paddling background. So I'm a UK sea kayaker, mostly. I would say if I had to describe my paddling style, I'm an expedition paddler. So I get pretty excited by going on trips, exploring new places, and I even do it for a job now, um, running and leading expeditions for a small company. Very cool. So and then does that uh, evoke, evoke adventure? Yeah, so I set up Evoke Adventure three years ago, and it was basically just to try and um, organize and get folks out on more interesting and unique expeditions, really. All right, we'll have to learn a little bit more about those and the things that you're doing with Evoke Adventures. Um, You've got many fascinating adventures, uh, whether it's uh, Lofoten or Patagonia, and then there's a recent one. It's uh, Grease the Turkey. So tell us a little bit about your Grease the Turkey trip. A couple of years ago, myself and a friend, I'd say for maybe five years, I've been looking at um, sort of Google Maps at different uh, kind of possibilities of trips that um, engage me. And I saw the this kind of arc of islands, which if you go onto Google Earth, if you look at where Athens is, there's this beautiful kind of archipelago of islands that, that link all the way across to Turkey. Uh, I thought I'd have a go at it because I'd never really done many open water crossings. Um, I love islands. The Mediterranean is is pretty accessible to me from from the UK. So yeah, we came up with this plan to link about 16 islands. I think it was 16 open water crossings. Yeah, and it was absolutely fabulous. That's cool. Google Earth has really changed expedition planning and given people so many fascinating ideas. Oh, hasn't it just? I mean, that's my go-to place uh, when I'm thinking or I'm trying to find some inspiration. I normally sort of have a little look at countries that I'm interested in visiting and exploring. And then from that, I can just get really absorbed and see what's there and and see what excites me, really. So what is it about this specific area of the world and, and this trip that got you fired up? Mainly the islands. I mean, the UK is an island in itself. So there's a lot of coastal paddling um, that we can do, but there's not really kind of any island toppings. And then my free time, because I work, I guide over the summer, I get to sort of October and my work trails off and that gives me an opportunity to do my own expeditions. Of course, I wanted to head to somewhere with slightly warmer waters than the UK. And so Greece is just about drivable. So yeah, I loaded up my kayaks onto my van and we road tripped down to Athens and we headed out to explore the islands really. And they were all kind of ranging between 15 kilometer to 50 kilometer crossing. 
things. I guess 50 kilometers to me at the time was, I didn't even know kind of how I'd feel about doing that kind of depth of open water crossing. So it was, it was a bit of a mind game as well. Yeah. So tell us uh, what kind of walk us through the trip. So we started in Athens and the idea being um, we'd uh, head along the coast and straight out to the nearest island, um, which is just southwest of Athens, which is Kia. From there, we were going to link islands. So Seraphos and uh, head across to the middle islands and Naxos, Paros and Naxos, and then Amorgos. And then our biggest crossing was to cross over to Kalimnos, which is, I mean, the UK is pretty famous for its sports climbing. But yeah, there's like a tiny rocky island between Amorgos and Kalimnos. Uh, it doesn't really have any water. We there's There was one house um, with a bay that we managed to land in, um, we camped on the beach there. But other than that, it's it's a pretty big open stretch of water. And then there's a couple of short hops um, to get yourself to Bodrum on uh, the Turkey side. Now, is that a, a pretty paddler-friendly part of the world in terms of uh, camping and, and such? Yeah, I mean, I've, I found the Mediterranean pretty good, especially that time of year. I think if you go in... Um, kind of June, July, August, when the, it's peak towards tourist season, the beaches have all got umbrellas on and lounges and hotels are quite, um, they're quite private with their section of beaches. When it comes to October, um, everybody's gone home. A lot of the hotels are kind of shut up for winter and uh, you get this really peaceful kind of beautiful environment and uh, you don't have to fight any tourists so I find it ideal although quite often you do have to put up with a little bit more unsettled weather. Define unsettled weather for that area when I think of that area I just think of sun and sandy beaches. You, is there yes. a lot there? <laughs> <laughs> to be perfectly honest, when I first started paddling in the Med, I had the same uh, the same idea. Somebody told me, oh, the, the water in the Mediterranean is flat. And I mean, I believed them until I kind of started paddling there. And then I realized the wind can actually have a huge impact on um, the conditions you're paddling in. So we actually had some pretty huge swell, um, some really windy conditions. I think that's the biggest thing. I mean, that's why it's a, it's so world famous for sailing because of the, the wind, the land warms up and you get these pretty strong winds, especially in the afternoon more than anything. So um, how many days were, was, was this trip? So it took us, um, we had like a three week block of time to be able to do it in. Most days we paddled, there was three days uh, we got stuck on a Morgos because we, we were waiting for a weather window to go for the, the two bigger crossings. So yeah, it just took us just under three weeks to complete it. And in total, it was a 400 kilometer journey. And then you mentioned some crossings. You said uh, anywhere from 12 to 50 kilometers. Yeah, yeah. So we started out, um, so the first five crossings was sort of between 15 and 25 kilometers. And we thought that was great because that would sort of warm us up. And the, when you set off the islands, they look pretty close. And yeah, 15 kilometers is only a few hours paddling. We use those to really kind of build our confidence to be out on, on the open water, really. And then as we get sort of into the more the middle of the of the expedition, the crossings sort of went up to 30, 35 kilometers. And that's like 
you're you're spending the day at sea. I mean, when I when I go out and paddle for a day just for fun, you'd hit 25, 30 kilometers, and that's a nice day paddle. So to do a 35 kilometer crossing in a day is you you're leaving just after breakfast and you're kind of arriving ready for ready for your dinner, and the whole day you've just been out on the water, and by the time you get to 50 kilometers, that's a that's a real head game, I find. So what did you find most unexpected about the trip? To be honest, I, I guess um, I found the weather was pretty challenging. The hardest thing for me was trying to make the decision of whether it, the conditions are right to set off. Because you know you're going to be out there and there's not really anywhere to land, there's no escape route, basically. You kind of you have to commit to it first thing in the morning. And that's quite a hard decision to make, especially when you think that the, the conditions feel a bit borderline to start with. And I mean, as you know, some quite often you'll, you'll pedal out around the headland uh, and the conditions change completely once you're out the shelter of the land. So, yeah, that was probably the, the toughest challenging part of the trip to me. All right. What, what would you say you, uh, you most enjoyed about the experience? I just I loved landing on a different island every single day. That was pretty special. The, the people were different. The, the towns that you'd paddle past, the coastline was very different. Uh, each island was very different. And that was that was pretty special to land somewhere completely new uh, every evening. All right. So tell us about some of the people uh, experiences that you had. That's always the piece that seems to make the difference for folks. Yeah, totally. Um, I've definitely found with expeditions, you sort of arrive on a beach. And I think because you arrive in your kayak and you've come off the sea. And I mean, the people of these islands, they are uh, naturally very seagoing people. And I think you surprise them more than anything, especially if you sort of come in and it's it's gotten a little bit wild over the last couple of hours. And so you look a bit wet and soggy and a bit uh, scraggly. They're pretty welcoming. And yeah, they'll point you in the direction of the best uh, taverna to get yourself some some hot food. The other things that made me laugh on these islands was the amount of stray cats. My paddling buddy, Georgie, she's absolutely adores animals. So she'd open a tin of tuna and before you know it, you'd be absolutely surrounded by a hundred of wild, wild cats <laughs> wanting a bit of tuna. <laughs> well, I wonder what it, what it is about that area that seems to draw the cats. I don't know. It must be. It's it's warm a lot of the year and, and then there's a lot of tourism. So I imagine there's a lot of food most of the time. But yeah, in the winter months, I'm, they must get pretty hungry because there's, there's not a huge amount going around on these islands. They're pretty quiet in the wintertime from what I could see. Now, are they mostly unpopulated or, or fairly populated? Yeah, they're, they're fairly populated. Like they're a, they're a fairly good size. So each town, each island has got like a couple of little towns on. And yeah, so nearly every day we would sort of land in some kind of civilization. And there's some islands that we landed on which which didn't. But you can kind of, yeah, that's research. Before you go, you check out on Google Earth what what's going to be there and whether you need to carry food or whether you can grab a meal at a taverna. So were there any particular hair-raising moments along the way that you wanted to share? I would say in the first few days and the first couple of crossings were probably the scariest for me. We had quite a lot of wind. And I remember, I think it was the second or third crossing, we headed out and we had like a a a wind a tailwind 
So we thought we'd just give it a go because it was it was going in the right direction. And I think it was a 15 to 20 kilometer crossing. Yeah, I just remember getting about halfway. And just as we were really out of the shelter of the island, the, the swell really kicked off and, and things began to get really big. And it turned into more of a holding on for dear life and um, putting in a few support strokes more than it was kind of controlled paddling. It wasn't until we sort of got into the shelter of the next island that we could take a take a, a breath and um, think about what to do next. <laughs> <laughs> now, how many were with you on the trip? So it was just me and one of my best friends, Georgie. So there was just two of us, which is unusual because normally I'll paddle with a group of uh, three or four paddlers. When you, when you kind of go to do something, you go as a team. But yeah, there was just two of us, which felt kind of nice, really, because we, we were we were making decisions together rather than sort of normally when you've got a bigger group of people. Quite often, there's there's somebody who takes the lead. Um, so that was pretty nice. It was a nice partnership. All right. Well, those those fast and light trips can be pretty beneficial. Yeah, there's lo- uh, le- much less faff going on as well. <laughs> so you, you you definitely spend less time waiting around for people to pack things and get on the water and <laughs> all those kind of things. Yeah, I had never heard that term up until a couple of years ago and enjoy that one. <laughs> so <laughs> Faffing. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's, a, it's a family show, so I can't fully define it on air here. So <laughs> <laughs> what were your biggest learnings from that experience? I would definitely say the biggest learning curve from that was learning how to control fear and learning how to make quite committing decisions and and feel okay with it. Quite often, I'd feel pretty nervous all morning. I'd eat breakfast and as soon as I got onto the water, like the decision had been made to to make the next crossing and suddenly I'd I'd feel very calm with that decision and then you kind of get on on and do it Uh, and because I'd never really done crossings before I'd never really had to deal with that that mindset before because when you're paddling along the coastline quite often there's always somewhere you can kind of pull out unless it's super cliffy I would definitely say I learned a huge amount about myself like confidence mindset um, and decision making really all right. Now, you mentioned uh, you know, there's always somewhere to pull out unless it's really cliffy uh, on, on other trips. Um, did you find any sections of this where you just didn't think you were going to be able to land for extended periods of time? There was definitely, yeah, there was definitely a bit of nervousness around kind of the little rocky island between Amorgos and Kalimnos, which was about the 50 kilometer mark. And that's where we were spending the night. And I remember paddling towards this island and it just felt and looked really cliffy. And all we had to go on was the fact I'd, I'd looked at it on Google Earth and thought, oh, right, there's a little inlet there that we'll definitely be able to land on. And actually, when, the reality is when you came close to it, I think the first bay that I thought we'd be able to land in, we couldn't. So we had to go a bit further. And of course, it was getting dark by that point. And so, yeah, there's nothing worse than sort of being really stuck out there. The dark comes and then you really can't tell where you can land. Uh, So there was definitely a moment where where I was a bit nervous about if I had done the research well enough. So speaking of research, um, you mentioned Google Earth, of course, and being able to kind of get that that visual and that dream of what the trip might look like and where you might go. But how did you research beyond that in terms of where you'd camp and put-ins and takeouts and other sorts of such? 
So to be honest, the put-ins and takeouts, I kind of make up as I go along. Like uh, for Google Earth, you can tell if there's a beach and, and a cove and things like that. You get a lot of information from the charts as well. So you can see where they recommend anchorage for yachts. That and just trying to plan to make sure that you, you land in a in a town. So quite often the we'd always try and paddle to a position where when we got on in the water on in the morning we would go straight into the crossing so that we'd have a few hours by the time we get to the island to paddle along the coast and just make sure that we're in a good position for the, the following day but i would say research wise we spoke to this awesome guy um, in Athens who runs his own sea kayaking center and he just gave us so much great advice and he was really psyched for the trip and and I think that really really helped motivate us and yeah it was just speaking to locals um, and just getting that, that those tips before you go that was really helpful and then yeah just pulling the information I do a lot a lot of it is I guess very dynamic so when you're on the water once you kind of learn what the landscape is like and what the island islands are like in general then you can kind of get better at spotting where you want to head to on an island or where you want to camp and things like that. And I find the hardest is actually camping like near civilization. That's when I feel the most uncomfortable because being out in the wild, I'm, I'm pretty good at, and you know there's no one there to disturb you. But when you're camping next to a town or, or you don't really have any other options but to, to kind of roll out your sleeping bag on a beach right next to a harbor, that's when I definitely feel a bit more uncomfortable. So was wild camping uh, pretty much legal everywhere or did you have to, you know, private landowners and those, those sorts of things? Do you know what? I, I never really quite know. Um, <laughs> I think with expedition kayaking, I find you rock up just before it gets dark and then you, you set up camp wherever you land. Quite often you don't often have like a, a massive choice about where you where you're staying that night that's just sort of where you've landed and those are your options so i i pretty much go for a be very discreet style so setting up camp after dark taking down camp just as just as day breaks and uh yeah you don't really get in anyone's way and you don't hurt anyone and nobody really seems to mind especially out of season that's nice so you were talking about crossing experience and uh, some of those crossings making you a little nervous. It sounds like this is one of your more significant trips with crossings. It sounds like the rest of your trips have been uh, more circumnavigations and such. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. I've, I don't know what it is about sea kayaking. We, li we like to go around things quite often, don't we? <laughs> Um, so, so yeah, I've, I've done I've, I've done a lot of coastal paddling around islands or sort of an A to B journey, um, where you've always got sort of the coast beside you. I've done a couple of of crossings, usually to kind of shortcut a really big bay or something, but never kind of this kind of scale really. So let's uh, let's stay in that general area of the world and uh, let's talk Corsica for a minute, if you don't mind. Um, you did a circumnavigation yes. of Corsica. Um, so Corsica, so I was doing a bit of work in Menorca at the time. So instead of driving back to the UK with my boats and things, I thought I'd head to Corsica and uh, two good friends of, of mine, Georgie, who did the Athens trip with me, and Bex, who's also another Cornish kayaker. Um, we headed to, to Corsica and... It's just a fabulous island. In particular, I absolutely adored the West Coast. 
it's very rugged. There's a lot of nature reserves. You can see the mountains uh, in the backdrop. And yeah, the I found that East Coast is much more sandy beaches. They they seem to sort of go on for a really long time. <laughs> but yeah, the West Coast uh, is constantly changing. Lots of headlands, quite a lot of different rock types. So the the scenery changed with every day. Um, what did you what, what did you really experience on that trip? How was that one different from any of the other? Uh, let's say how was that different from the Greece to Turkey? I don't know. Every trip is very different. The landscape's different. The people are different. The cultures are different. Corsica was, it was my first trip I'd ever done with like an all female team. I used to struggle to find people to paddle with. So quite often other trips I'd done, like um, paddling around Sardinia, um, I went with, well, basically a stranger I sort of hooked up with on the internet who wanted to do the same sort of thing. So Corsica was, was awesome in the fact that I was doing it with really close friends. And so I think you're not getting to know each other in the same way. Uh, so you can have a really good atmosphere between the team. With every expedition, you always seem to be paddling coastline you've never, you've never experienced before. So around every corner, although you've got a map, you you don't really know what to expect. You don't know where you're going to be camping each night because you set off and you think, right, I'll cover thirty kilometers today. That's the goal, and then after thirty kilometers, you have to try and find somewhere to camp. Um, so it's a very ad hoc kind of on the move way of living. And so, yeah, that's what I really loved. And, and Corsica, well, that and every time you found a bakery, that's a pretty, a pretty good treat in, in a French country anyway. That's not a bad thing at all. Oh, is Corsica a pretty paddler-friendly <laughs> pretty, pretty paddler country as well for you? Yes, it is. Yeah, I think there's a bit, there's a, there's more a struggle to find. You're not allowed to camp in the nature reserves and things like that. So you have to be um, a little bit more on it with the planning to make sure that you're not in those areas where where camping's forbidden. Um, but yeah, the the people are super friendly. Uh, we we um, we had this chap come and find us on we got stuck in a storm on a beach so we were just hanging out on the beach and he came and spoke to us and then he took us for pizza and he showed us around his local town so yeah the people definitely are really interested in what you're doing and I think in particular when when you come in from the sea and you, you don't look like you've got much with you because it's all kind of nestled in a kayak I think people are very intrigued definitely are so any recommendations or advice that you'd give to someone planning a trip to Corsica? Yes, definitely go to the West Coast and explore the nature reserves. There's a there's an amazing mountain range which which runs down like it's like a spine through the island and that's pretty significant. So you can see all of that from from both coastlines you can see these mountains in the middle and then on the north coast you've got this big kind of thumb that sticks up out of the the island um i definitely say that headland can get pretty wild i remember when we went around it it was uh, it picked up the swell kind of from the west uh, so that was that would be something to bear in mind but other than that the french are really friendly and the food's great all right any particular good resources for planning that you might recommend for corsica Good question. Corsica um, was one of my earlier expeditions and I think I just bought, there's two maps which you can buy that covers the entire island. With with that paddle, that was the only research I really did was to look closely at the maps, trying to plot out 
where I wanted to to go to each day and then go for it. All right. Shifting back to uh, Greece to Turkey, any particular recommendations yeah. on uh, uh, for that trip for someone planning a similar expedition? I would definitely, with the Greek islands, I would definitely go with the charts just because you can get different sizes. So the entire archipelago, we planned the route on um, on a chart that was big enough that, that had the whole crossing on. And then each couple, every couple of days um, when we were actually navigating, uh, we'd have maybe like two islands on, on a chart so we could have more detail to navigate with. That was pretty useful. Because there's a lot of sailing in the Greek islands, there's some sailing guides and they're pretty handy for finding out kind of major harbours, um, like anchorages, so sort of safe places where kind of the boats go to to find shelter. And quite often that's pretty helpful. And then there's there's quite a prominent wind, like a trade wind in that area as well. Um, so I just researched uh, on the internet kind of on the sailing websites about the winds, what they did, how they behaved. And that gave me a really good idea of kind of what to expect and, and maybe what route to, would be best to take. All right. I'll have to collect some of that information and uh, put that in the show notes. So anybody who might be planning an expedition to that corner of the world might have a, a resource. Yeah, definitely. All right. Uh, so what equipment, what equipment did you use on in either of the trips? Um, so, uh, at the moment I'm paddling a rock pool Taran, which is a really beautiful boat. I love paddling. It's got a, it's got a rudder. It's quite a fast boat. So I'm finding when I'm trying to cover distance, it's nice to be paddling one of those, a slightly longer, slightly faster boat. And then I'll try to stay really basic. So just a tent. I like to use a, a fully geodesic tent so you can pitch. Um, it doesn't matter what you're on, whether you're on sand. Sometimes I've I've had to pitch my tent on like on a stony, pebbly beach. And if you've got a geodesic compared to a, a tunnel tent, for example, you're not relying on the pegs to to hold the shape of the tent. So if you can't find anything, you can get away with camping in it, kind of just held down with a few rocks here and there. So that's a really good piece of equipment. I'm kitted out from head to toe in, in palm equipment kit. For the warm water stuff, I normally just wear kind of regular shorts and like a shorty dry cag just to stop stop you getting too wet and salty and you don't get chafed then, so you stay nice and comfortable all day. So what are the water temperatures in that area? Oh, good question. I'm not very good at numbers, but I can tell <laughs> you that you can swim in a, in a costume uh, and it's pretty comfortable. And I paddle. you can paddle most of the time in shorts and T-shirt. In the summer months, if you go in June and July, uh, it's too hot for me to paddle. I get a little bit agitated and dehydrated. So I definitely hit, hit those kind of places. And usually May, April, May are really beautiful months. And then so uh, September, October, November. So I'm here in the U.S. And just for some reason, the idea of you know, leaving your home in the, in the U.K. and just driving down to Athens just seems strange to me. <laughs> I, I think it was um i mean in my head i think i thought it was closer than it really is i think it probably took us like a good four or five days to get to athens from the uk okay um but yeah we went through the list of countries we drove through was phenomenal i didn't realize 
Four or five days makes me feel a little bit better. When you were first talking about it, I was thinking, oh, you know, a couple of days. I don't know. I hadn't even looked at a map to figure out what that might look like. But yeah, it's just uh, that's quite a quite a drive in itself. Yeah, it is. It's a big trek. But to be honest, I find I quite like going to places where I can take my own equipment. I know what I'm using then, and I yeah, I have confidence in it, especially when I'm doing something where I feel like it's quite testing in itself for my paddling. Uh, in comparison to sometimes you go to places and you, you might hire a kayak and you've got a mishmash of stuff, and quite often they're not as comfortable as your own boat and you've got to paddle them for, for three weeks. It's... It, yeah, it doesn't feel as comfortable as being able to kind of go down with all the kit that you want and you rely on. Uh, then you've got this level of confidence in what you're using. Oh, it's nice to be able to to get to such a variety of terrain, whether it's your home waters or Norway or uh, the Mediterranean from you know, not that far yeah, away. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing what's um, what you can get to actually fairly comfortable from the UK. You've got the you've got the whole of Europe really to to play with. And if you go south, you get to warmer waters. If you go north, you get to the colder waters at Norway and Sweden. So coming back to your home waters, um, you also run a program called Paddle Pickup. So tell us a little bit about that program. Paddle Pickup was, it was an expedition I put together to try and kind of raise awareness of plastics that I was coming across um, as a paddler. So over the last 10, 15 years, I've, I've noticed when I land on a beach, the level of plastic and rubbish that, that you find is, is unbelievable especially on beaches where um, the, the only way you can access them is by kayak or by boat. And then you really see the, the impact of sort of the waste that is going into the oceans. So paddle pickup was kind of my way of trying to engage people in that and to try and engage paddlers that when you go for a paddle, you can, you can on your lunch break you can pick up some rubbish and take it home with you especially on a on a day paddle you quite often have space in your kayak and and it's and talking about those things and so the expeditions I've done quite often will be one two or three week trips and I started off connecting the British waterways so I paddled from Bristol which is on the the west coast um, of the UK and we paddled rivers and canals and waterways all the way through through London out onto the the east coast we basically every day we spend all day collecting plastics waste and rubbish I mean we we collected more than three three or four thousand pieces of plastic from the waterways whilst also covering 20 kilometers a day and so yeah that they're good expeditions because you you can get a lot of people involved the bristol to london was a three-week expedition and each week i would get a new set of uh, a new team so another eight people would come and join and they would get to experience the expedition and and the plastics and we quite often get a, a lot of media coverage as well which is great because um, more people can see what we're doing and, and maybe they can do it in their local area as well. So are you, are you continuing, this is a continuing activity? Yeah, so I mean, this year, uh, COVID pretty much scuppered most plans. I'm sure you guys are feeling the same. Sure. Um, but yeah, I've, for the last three years, I do an expedition every year and it's more, it's a passion project. It's, 
I really want to be doing something, doing my part for the environment to encourage other people to do it as well. So every year I try to I try to plan an expedition. Uh, last year we went to Scotland, which was incredible. Uh, we went to the Summer Isles, which is right up in the northwest corner of Scotland. And we were paddling each day. We paddled to a different island to clear up the beaches and... I was absolutely blown away by the amount of waste that we found and quite a lot of fishing gear as well in particular. So oh. yeah, this this year we were supposed to go back to Scotland. We were supposed to go to a, a different area to do sort of the same, have the same impact in, in a different group of islands. So what we'll do is we'll be going back in, in May to do that um, this year. So we think of ourselves uh, as paddlers, we think of ourselves as environmentally conscious, yet the areas that we populate always still seem to end up with a lot of stuff. And unfortunately, it's not just everyone else. We can be better. Absolutely, yeah. And I think I've definitely come to realize that, I mean, if you love something, you take better care of it. I mean, it's when you, when you get a new piece of equipment or a new boat, you you really look after it. And so if if you if you're a paddler and you love the ocean and you love your local waterways and, and the places that you get to get on the water and you get that freedom and, and joy, I mean, it definitely, it made me feel sad when I landed on a beach or even you'd see like a plastic bottle float past me. Uh, I definitely got to the point where I couldn't just watch it anymore. I had to be part of the solution, even if that means picking other people's plastic up so that the place I love is clean and healthy, then uh, that's one thing I can do, as well as thinking about the changes I can make to my purchasing or the the stuff I use. It definitely makes me more mindful about the amount of plastic I'm using, especially single waste plastics and making an effort to avoid those for the sake of the the, the planet and the places I love. Well, thank you for being part of the solution. So Aaron, what's next for you? <laughs> Um, to be honest, my, my next, my next adventure is slightly different to paddling. I have joined a team, an all female team to row across the Atlantic ocean in 2021. So at the moment we're training hard. So I've, I'm learning how to row. I, I thought as a paddler that uh, rowing wouldn't be all that difficult, but yeah, it's quite technical. <laughs> So uh, that's next year's plan to, yeah, row 3,000 miles across a very big ocean. That's pretty cool. Now, is that a, a team effort then? Yeah. So I've joined as a, it's a team of um, four women. Again, we didn't know each other before. So we found each other through sort of, um, yeah, like a common dream, basically. We all wanted to do it. And so somehow we've kind of come together and said, we'll put a team together and start training and i mean the biggest the biggest hurdle at the moment is the fundraising um and yeah getting the cash and support together to be able to do it so and uh, our biggest um our, our aim is to raise awareness for yeah healthy oceans and what we can be doing to to really uh make changes that's great now um forgive my ignorance i mean you, you hear a lot of about a lot of solo paddlers doing that uh, but this is a team effort are you in individual boats or are you on the same boat no so we're on the same boat so an ocean rowing boat is about eight meters long it's got a tiny cabin in the the front and the back 
which uh, you can sleep two in a cabin when it's when it's stormy, but it's pretty tight. But most of the time you have two people rowing and then every two hours you swap over. So long as the, it's not too rough and stormy, uh, you're continuously rowing as a team of four. And what's your anticipated time for that in terms of, uh, not, not time of year, but time to actually make the row? So, um, I mean, it, it completely depends on weather conditions because obviously the wind is pretty helpful or it could be a hindrance. So, I mean, the record, I think, is 29 days. So on average, it takes normally 40 to 50 days. So we're, we're hoping to get to, to at least 40 days and if not, trim a few extra days off that. Um, so, I, yeah, I guess it depends how hard we train right now and, um, yeah, what weather we get thrown our way. And did you say you're going east to west or west to east? From UK? We are UK. going east to west. So we start in the Canary Islands and then we, yeah, we head west over to Antigua. And it's actually part of a big race. Um, there's normally 30 teams that kind of enter this race. It's called the Talisker Atlantic Challenge. Yeah, my team's called the One Ocean Crew. So if you Google the One Ocean Crew, you'll be able to see our faces and have a look at what we're up to. Excellent. I will make certain that we have links to that in the show notes. So we were talking about uh, open water crossings and that earlier and how uh, a lot of your trips previous had been circumnavigations where you've got land on your right or land on your left. And so you had some larger yeah. crossings with the Greece, the Turkey. This is a big crossing. <laughs> this is, I mean, this, there's definitely butterflies in my stomach <laughs> when I think about um, being in a tiny boat in the middle of the ocean. And I guess, I mean, I guess the draw to try and do that comes from my sea kayaking and my love of the ocean and experiencing the ocean. And, and also I find it quite intriguing. I like to, I like to try and understand kind of the weather conditions and the moods of the, the ocean. And I guess you can't really do a better job than that than in a tiny rowing boat, really. Well, congratulations on taking that first step to <laughs> to do that and I'll be, we'll be looking forward to hearing about one ocean crew i'll make certain that i put links to one ocean crew as, as well as other links in our show notes um, with that in mind aaron how can listeners reach you um so if you want to see kind of the trips that i'm running and expeditions that i'm doing the best place to go to is evoke adventure um so that's www.evokeadventure.com um and on there I, I quite often write blogs about trips um and then the other place I'm most active is on Instagram. Um, so you can see all, all of my photos, trip photos and adventures uh, at Erin Bastian. Um, and that's how you'll find me. All right. Well, again, I will make sure I put links in the show notes for people to reach you uh, through both Instagram as well as Evoke Adventures. And they can check out your blog. And I think you've got some videos on there as well. Is that right? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I've got some videos. Um, uh, you can see well, most of my trips, Corsica, Sardinia, Patagonia, Lofoten. I've got, I make little films. Um, so yeah, there's some really good films. If you want, if you're thinking about heading to Europe to do some paddling and uh, you want to see what it's, what it's like, then those films are really good for that. Excellent. Well, Aaron, thank you very much. I appreciate your time today. I do have one final question uh, that we ask all of our guests toward the end of the interview here. And that one question is, who else would you like to hear as a future guest on Paddling the Blue? 
I think I would totally um, love to recommend Cal Major. She's a stand-up paddleboarder from the UK, and she's done some amazing, amazing things on a stand-up paddleboard. She's also into expeditions and and also campaigning to reduce single plastics. So she's a pretty inspirational woman. I think you'd have a really nice time chatting to her and, and hearing about her stories. Great. Well, yeah, Cal's definitely done some some pretty cool expeditions, and it'll be neat to have an opportunity to talk to uh, somebody doing something a little different, which is expedition paddleboarding. So I yeah. appreciate the lead, and we'll reach out to Cal. So again, Aaron, thank you very much. I appreciate your time today, and appreciate hearing about Greece to Turkey, and hearing about Corsica as well, and and exciting news about One Ocean Cruise. So we'll definitely be following that and see where that goes. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. If you want to be a stronger and more efficient paddler, Power to the Paddle is packed with fitness guidance and complete descriptions, along with photos of more than 50 exercises to improve your abilities and enjoy your time on the water. The concept and exercises in this book have helped me become a better paddler, and they can make a difference for you too. The exercises in the book can help you reduce tension in your shoulders and low back, use the power of your torso to create leverage and use less energy with each stroke, use force generated from your lower body to make your paddling strokes more efficient, have the endurance to handle long days in the boat, drive through the toughest waves or whitewater, protect your body against common paddling injuries, and while you're at it, you might even lose a few pounds, and who wouldn't mind that? So visit paddlingexercises.com to get the book and companion DVD. It was truly a pleasure to talk to Aaron. Aaron was one of a couple referrals from Will Copestake from episode 22. So if you haven't listened to that one, go ahead and uh, go back and do that. Aaron has a great variety of expeditions under her belt, so please be sure to check out her websites, evokeadventure.com and aaronbastion.com. You'll find links in the show notes to both those, and while you're there, make sure you check out her videos so you can learn some more about these amazing places. Um, we'll, also put, we'll also put links to her upcoming Atlantic Row with One Ocean Crew in the show notes as well. As announced in our last episode with Stig Larson, we are celebrating our one-year anniversary, uh, and we've got prizes for you. So if you haven't listened to my conversation with Stig, go back to episode 25 for the first of the four questions. I'll give you this episode's question in just a minute, and then for the next two episodes, you'll find a question somewhere in the episode that you need to answer. It might be about that episode or another episode. If you've got the correct answer, send it to me by email at john at paddlingtheblue.com, along with your name, email address, and mailing address. Each correct answer will go into a random drawing to win $100 to spend in the level 6 gear of your choice, and some other lucky winners will also earn some sweet shirts and limited edition hoodies from our friends at PH Custom Sea Kayaks. And now, as I mentioned earlier in the episode, Werner Paddles has joined into the fun as well. A big thank you to all three, and especially level 6, for our grand prize. Remember, you've got until February 28th, 2021 to get your answer to me, and we'll announce the winners on our March 15th. 2021 show. So here is this episode's question. What would Jake eat in the parking lot on his resupply runs? One more time, what would Jake eat in the parking lot on his resupply runs? Our next episode is going to feature Nick Shada, and Nick designs and builds boats through his company, Guillemot Kayaks. 
He's a recommendation from another of our previous guests, this time from episode 19, Joey Schott. If you've had a chance to listen to that episode, you'll remember that Joey's building one of Nick's designs, that's the Petro Play, in carbon fiber and other fabrics. So if you've not done so already, take a listen to that episode to hear how a boat gets built, and then join us for the next episode to hear how Nick got started, his design process, and what inspires Nick. So thanks again for listening, and I look forward, as always, to bringing you the next episode of Paddling the Blue. Thank you for listening to Paddling the Blue. You can subscribe to Paddling the Blue on Apple Music, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Please take the time to leave us a five-star review on Apple Music. We truly appreciate the support. And you can find the show notes for this episode and other episodes, along with replays of past episodes, contact information, and more at paddlingtheblue.com. Until next time, I hope you get out and paddle the blue.